Do you know what the Massachusetts PFML law is? It's the Massachusetts Paid Family Medical Leave Law, and we're discussing what it means to you right now on On Air with Myra O'Connell. Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. Today we're talking about the Massachusetts Paid Family Medical Leave Law. The bill was signed into law by Governor Charlie Baker in June of 2018 and has taken effect in stages in the years since then. On July 1st, 2021, the final piece of the law went into effect. So we wanted to see how it is going so far and what problems employers are facing. Attorney Jonathan Siegel, partner and chair of Myrick O'Connell's Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group, is here to talk about some so-called traps for the unwary and things employers can do to avoid them. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Howard. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you. So can you give us, to start things off with, Jonathan, a general overview of this law? Sure. So, you know, just to kind of start off, I've been practicing now for uh, just about 30 years. And uh, in the area of employment law, and one of the reasons that I uh, I like uh, employment law, and for me, it's the only law that I would practice, is because you really have to be a student uh, for your whole career, because uh, unlike some other areas of the law, employment law always has new you know, whether it's statutory law, case law, regulatory law, guidances, on and on, uh, there's always new stuff happening, as as HR professionals well know. Uh, this particular law is, if it's not the most impactful and comprehensive law that I've dealt with in my practice, it's it's got to be right up there. I mean, early in my career, the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act went into uh, effect back in 1993, but that law is... Uh, not nearly as broad as this Massachusetts law. It covers a lot of the same kind of stuff. And, and I'll talk about the interaction between the laws a little bit later. But the, the biggest thing is the paid family and medical leave law is a paid uh, leave law, unlike the federal FMLA. So it's really a, it's a big deal, put it that way. So and, and generally speaking, it's a state offered benefit for workers in Massachusetts um, employees are eligible to take, for a variety of different family and medical reasons, a total of 26 weeks of paid leave in any year, a uh, 12-month period. So that's a lot, you know, but for an employee's own serious health condition, it's up to 20 weeks. Um, but uh, for parental leave, it's up to 12 weeks. Uh, as of July 1, you can now take leave for uh, because you need to care for a family member's serious health condition. But even the definition of a family member is broader than the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act. So combined, right, you, you could have up to 26 weeks of leave. So you could have had some situations already where, for example, pregnant employee has complications early on, that's going to be the serious health condition part where they could take up to 20 weeks. And then they would get up to another six weeks if they took a full 20 of parental leave. So often it's could be maybe a few weeks or six weeks of serious health condition, but the balance could be, you know, parental leave up to a total aggregate of 26 weeks. So it's a law that's very generous uh, to uh, employees. And the other thing, an important distinction between the PFML and the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act, the FMLA, is 
that, you know, with the FMLA, an employer has to have at least 50 employees in a 75 mile radius. An employee has to be, you know, if, if that's the case, then they're covered. An employee right. has to have been with the employer for at least one year and uh, have worked at least 1,250 hours in the previous one year period. Those parameters don't exist uh, in the PFML. Uh, you don't have to be with a company for any particular amount of time, and uh, you don't have to have worked any particular number of hours. There are other eligibility requirements. You have to have earned at least uh, $5,400. And, and so there's other, there, there are uh, other eligibility criteria, but the, the, you know, the threshold is very low. So, you know, you could have a very small business that loses uh, someone to a leave of absence under this law for months. And, you know, the reason the federal law had that 50 employee threshold is, I think Congress said, all right, well, companies that are at least that size can uh, deal with and accommodate leaves more easily than a smaller employer. Well, in this case, we've got you know, there isn't any employee threshold. So you could get a very small company that has to deal with the absence of one or more of their employees that can really be disruptive. And it, certainly it's caused concern. But as I tell my clients about a lot of things, don't kill the messenger. I didn't make these laws. I'm just helping you navigate through them and, and comply with them. Quick question, Jonathan. Uh, do employees know about this law in large numbers, because it seems to me that this, uh, I think, in combination with COVID, might have flown under the radar somewhat. It, it's, this, this is very generous. And it just seems to me many employees may not even be aware of this. Well, that may be, uh, but there were part of this law uh, when this got rolled out. And again, I could we could do a two-hour podcast on this thing. And by the way, I've already done two webinars that are available if you, if you go onto Myra O'Connell's website right. with my partner, Corey Higgins, where we do get into the weeds on all of this stuff because it's very comprehensive. But, you know, this is funded through a tax, right? It's, very, it's based on the and modeled after the unemployment comp system. Uh, it's also modeled after, in part, the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act. But now for a couple of years, monies have been deducted from employees' pay unless a company decides to get a private plan that is blessed by the state. And when they do that, they've got an insurance company and it's an insurance premium. But otherwise, when the law came down and employers had to start taking money out of folks' pay, or even if they were paying 100% of it, which an employer could choose to do but most haven't, they had to also notify employees of this law, you know, what was going on, what this law provides. So the notification, if employers have complied with all that stuff, then employees are notified about it, have been notified about it, and new hires have to be notified about it as well. And we've also done a lot of, because you're not going to get a policy from the state or even from an insurance company. You'll have an insurance policy, but but that's different than a PFML policy in terms of what it covers and how the application works and all that good stuff. So there are a variety of ways uh, in which, you know, employers have to notify their employees, including, of course, workplace posting. The latest development, Jonathan, in all of this is that the final piece of the law took effect, uh, I believe, on July 1st of this year, 2021. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. And that's, as I think you you mentioned uh, earlier, and I don't know the reason this phase of the law was kind of delayed, but 
because the law, you know, everything else uh, went into effect on January 1st of this year. But for whatever reason, the legislature decided to hold off on this uh, phase, on this aspect of the law, which is, you know, that you can take this up to 12 weeks to care for a family member with a serious health condition. And family member is pretty broadly defined. Um, you know, it goes well beyond the definition of a family member under the federal FMLA. So, you know, that's so now employees have an opportunity if they have to care for uh, an ill or injured uh, family member, they can they can take up to 12 weeks to do that and um, and get that paid benefit, whether it's through the state or through a private uh, insurance plan. And um, uh, but, you know, whether it's your own serious health condition or whether you're going to take this leave to care for a family member with a serious health condition, there must be a medical certification that is completed by the, you know, whether it's, if it's your own serious health condition completed by your provider, your healthcare provider, and if it's for a family member by theirs. And uh, that's another kind of nuance compared to the federal FMLA, where while I've always advised clients to use a medical certification with FMLA leave and the Department of Labor provides all the forms for that, the law doesn't require it. So in this case with the PFML, if, it, if you're going through the state, it is required. And if you're going through an insurance company, you have to apply just like if you were applying for a short-term disability, you've got to have that medical certification. And um, employer, the employer has a right to see that certification. So I've, all, I've already seen some issues where uh, there's hesitancy uh, by an insurance company, whatever, to provide that kind of information to the employer, but that's not, that's not right. An employer has a right to, uh, to see that. And if there's a reason to, just like under the federal FMLA, if there's a reason to challenge the validity or obtain clarification for that certification, then, then uh, you need to be able to do that. Because what the state does, if you're going through the state, is they like to put the burden back on the employer to say, okay, you know, we're good with giving this person the benefit and the leave. Are you? You know, are you, are you okay with that? And really, uh, I mean, you can just kind of rubber stamp it. That's not a good idea. You really want to take a look and see uh, what the, you know, what the reasons are, what the, if the certification looks, looks proper and all that stuff. But, you know, probably 90 something percent of the time, it's, it's going to be, uh, compliant and, and the leave will have to be given. So, but in any event, to your original question, yeah, that's, that's the part of the law that is now in effect. So the law is now fully in effect. Great. Now, there are, as always, traps for the unwary and common issues facing employers who are navigating this particular law, the PFML. What could you say to us, Jonathan, are they and how can employers get around them? So, you know, just like back when the FMLA came into play, in 93, the year before, uh, 1992, the Americans with Disabilities Act went into effect, right? So, you know, the federal government is, you know, comes out with the FMLA and, you know, they've got to kind of also kind of keep in mind, okay, the ADA, but then there can be state laws and workers comp and other things that can uh, intersect, these laws intersect. And, and unfortunately, and this is true with the PFML too, the legislators don't always think through it. And they don't go, okay, how might this implicate these other laws? How, how will they, you know, how can they all play nicely in the sandbox together? And it really has gotten very complicated because you've got to look at all of those things. So for example, even if someone's uh, 
let's take a federal FMLA, and this would be true of the PFML too, if the person's protected leave has expired and they need more time off beyond what is provided under either the FMLA or the PFML, uh, the the, um, inquiry doesn't end there. You have to find, okay, well, how much more time off? You know, what's the basis for that? And can we accommodate it? Because if it's a disability, and, and I think it's easier than ever for an employee to, or, or their attorney to, to establish that they do have a disability, then you have to engage in what's called the interactive process to determine whether you have to provide reasonable accommodation for, uh, for that individual. So while they may not be covered by the FMLA or PFML anymore, uh, in order to comply with the ADA uh, and also state discrimination and reasonable accommodation laws, uh, you may need to extend their leave of absence as a reasonable accommodation. So that's something to, to keep in mind. And, you know, I've had questions from clients like, well, Jonathan, if the, if, if the PFML is broader than the FMLA, and, and this is obviously assuming that the employer is covered by the FMLA and the individual is eligible for FMLA, you know, the client will say, well, why do we have to, who cares about the FMLA now? Because the PFML provides for uh, greater uh, protections and benefits and all that. But uh, what, I, what I've had to tell clients is the FMLA didn't just go away. So you're going to have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, you should, you should, you know, treat it simultaneously as an FMLA with all the proper forms and medical certification and also as a PFML leave, they have to, they're going to coexist. And it could be that the person needs a leave for their own serious health condition that goes beyond 12 weeks of FMLA, but you can and should have those leaves of absence run concurrently. So an employee can't stack them. And here's the kicker with that. In order to do that, uh, for, for anyone listening to this podcast who has dealt with the FMLA, you have to choose a 12-month period in your policy, whether that's a calendar 12 months or a rolling look back or a forward-looking or you know some other 12-month period. Probably 99% of employers out there for FMLA chose what's called the rolling basis, which is you, know, you said, you know, if you said Howard, Howard says to me, Jonathan, I need uh, you know, time off, um, FMLA, uh, you know, covered. Uh, reason, um, we'll say, okay, Howard, let's look backwards 12 months. How much FMLA have you used in the previous 12-month period? And if the answer is none, then you get up to 12 weeks. If you took six weeks, then we know you've only got six weeks left to take and so on. The PFML cannot be rolling look back. It's only forward-looking, meaning you say to me today, I have to take a leave of absence for six weeks. And now today, and today is August 4th, your 12-month period, because your leave is going to begin today, your 12-month period is going to go from August 4th, 2021 to August 3rd, 2022. That's your 12-month period for PFML. So if we want FMLA to run concurrently, we have to change the FMLA 12-month period. And I've been working with clients on that since you know December to change their policy. And if you do, you have to give employers a uh, 60-day notice of that change. And- uh-huh. So you can make the change, but if the change is going to negatively affect and negatively impact them in any way in terms of the FMLA, then you've got to be more conservative and give them the extra time. You know, in other words, it can't you, you can't deprive them, right. um, particularly. So that's going to really affect someone if they're 
you know, particularly if they're on a leave during that 60 day period. Uh, but, you know, that's what I've done and, and made changes, necessary changes to medical certification policies, the FMLA policy, the parental leave policy. So, because at the end of the day, you do want all of these leaves to run concurrently as much as possible, generally, because you don't want them stacked so that someone could be out for even longer than the 26 weeks right. or maximum under the PFML. Right. So that's that's another trap for the unwary. I'll mention this, even though it's not you know, unique to the PFML, but uh, I, I, if I had a nickel for every time I've asked a client who's told me that they're, they've got an employee who's been out uh, as a result of a work-related injury, I'll say to them, did you, you know, assuming obviously they're covered by the FMLA and the individuals elig- would have been eligible for FMLA leave, I'll say, well, did you designate it as FMLA leave? And they'll say, no, it's a worker's comp leave. And I'll and and I will say, well, no, there's no such thing as a workers' comp leave. It's a medical leave for which they are getting workers' comp benefits, uh, just like if they were getting short-term disability benefits, right? Uh, or now with the PFML, PFML benefits, it's a benefit law. Yep. Um, and so you should have designated it as FMLA. Um, and you know, so so that's another trap for the unwary. With the, the the PFML is both a leave law and a benefit law, and then you've got potentially as you know short term disability benefits or workers comp benefits, and so the PFML regulations uh, take those into account and have different provisions in terms of um, how those benefits might be affected uh, or how the PFML benefit might be affected if you are also getting workers comp for example. So that that's something else that um, that is a trap for the unwary. So just to put in general, how all these laws kind of intersect with each other and the various benefits. And, um, you know, the other thing that I find annoying and I don't understand, and it, it's really uh, clients get frustrated by, by it, is, is that there's a provision in the law uh, where, so you could get currently, right? And this is going to change over time. Currently, the maximum benefit is 850 bucks a week. But what if you make, let's just say, $1,000 a week, and I've got vacation time. Could I say, all right, I want to supplement that $850 with this earned vacation time or sick time to bring it to, to 100% pay, $1,000? Right. Sure. This law, other than the first seven days of a PFML leave, which are otherwise unpaid, and even then you can't require someone to use paid sick time, for example, uh, which also frustrates me because- if it if it's covered by both the earned sick time law uh, and you know the PFML, uh, why can't you require someone to use it? But you can, you can permit it though. But after that, if at least with respect to paid time off benefits, as opposed to workers' comp or short term disability or other types of paid leave benefits, if you if someone uh, is paid vacation or sick time during a time they're also receiving PFML, it would disqualify them completely from receiving the PFML benefits. So you can't supplement. Again, that wow. makes no sense to me. Wow. Um, and you know because even if it's not even like well, what if it's the employee the employee's choice? Doesn't matter. Uh, you can't do it. But certain not all, uh, but certain insurance companies have said. And we don't care, which is what the state should say too. So yes, you can supplement, you know, I just dealt with a working on a policy this morning where the the particular insurance company, which was in that case, Unum, 
um, we had no problem with it. Fine. You want to supplement, supplement, and there's no problem. It's not running foul of the law. It's more generous than the law. But if you were doing it through the state, it would be a no. And some insurance companies with their plans have just said, they're just tracking the state law exactly. And so it's, so it's a no. Um, but again, it, it just, it's, it seems silly to me, but it's something, you know, something else to, um, to be aware of. So Jonathan, uh, as we begin to wrap up this podcast, and this has been really helpful information, and you've taken a, a very complex new law and really simplified it and made it understandable, I think, hopefully for our listeners. And as you mentioned, you've also done uh, some webinars too that are accessible. What would be your final advice for employers, at least on this podcast? I guess it would be, if you don't, if you know, I mean, I didn't realize how many of our clients would would purchase private plans. So now that I've seen them and I've seen that it, it seems to be easier uh, when you have a plan like that, for both for the employee and the employer to navigate, I guess it, I would one one piece of advice would be to think about if you don't have a private plan now and maybe you don't want one for 2021, think get go get some quotes from your broker for 2022 uh, because it may be. Uh, better for you and even more potentially more cost effective uh, to, to go through a private plan. I think a lot of this is going to have to shake out. We're going to have to see, you know, people are going to have to see uh, financially and, you know, what the impact is and like any insurance, right? Premiums can go up and all that stuff. But so I would check that out. Another is to really specifically to HR folks, really educate yourself on this. Don't hesitate to call your employment attorney, which hopefully is us. Um, if you've got questions about it, get a PFML policy in place. If you don't have one, we, we have wonderful models and, you know, we don't hand them out for free, but we, we do have a very low kind of fee for that. Um, so that's a good thing to do. And then, um, keep up online, keep up with the, you know, be a subscriber to the department of family and medical leave, uh, website. So you can get, uh, the periodic updates that, uh, that they have. The other thing is um, be very mindful of anti the anti-retaliation provision of this law because it, it's one of the most employee-friendly and employer-unfriendly provisions I've seen in any uh, law, any anti-discrimination law or something else. And just and I know we're running short on time, but any adverse action, and that's not just a termination. It could be, but it could be a demotion or it could be a poor performance evaluation potentially that happens within six months of an employee taking a leave is going to be presumed to be retaliation. Presumed. In other words, employers guilty till proven innocent. An employer must show by clear and convincing evidence, which is one step below beyond a reasonable doubt and one step above preponderance of the evidence, which, uh, for example, are uh, the burden of proof standard in, in discrimination claims where the employee always has the burden of proof. So, with this now, the employer has the burden of showing by clear and convincing evidence that any such adverse action was taken for legitimate non-retaliatory reasons. And that brings me to, to my other significant piece of advice on this, which is if you haven't educated your supervisors on good HR practices, proper documentation, proper progressive discipline, performance evaluations, then you should. Um, that's really critical because one of the ways you're going to 
you have to prove this if there's ever an adverse employment action within that six month period is through documentation and showing that, you know, let's say this termination for performance reasons, look, we've, this is well documented. This person's had these issues for a while and that's, you know, that's how you want to prove it. So that's critical for many reasons and always has been anyway. But now with this law, it, 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 it really has a, a much more profound kind of significance. So for, for a long time, I've been doing a um, two-hour management training and best practices that I call avoiding loose cannons, because often those supervisors and managers are those loose cannons that can get you into trouble. And um, so, you know, I've done that quite a bit. And, and particularly since this law went into effect to help employers prepare uh, to counter those kind of any kind of retaliation claims. How can folks take advantage of that training and uh, some of your other webinars, Jonathan? Yeah, well, the webinars are available uh, on our website, uh, where we have, I think, a number of our e-blasts and, and webinars available. If you're not on our marketing list, you should you should get on our marketing list so you get updates on a regular basis. You should uh, subscribe to our employment law blog called Off the Clock. Um, and then reach out to me directly if you want more information about the management training I just described. I can send you a brochure that, that I put together for it. I'm happy to talk to anyone about what that would entail. And I've even done them now during the pandemic. I've done them remotely. I've done them uh, via Zoom or Teams or what have you. So it's, it's doable and they've been successful. And I think generally speaking, uh, clients have really appreciated that because I'm always someone that learned better when I was in a kind of a classroom setting than reading things out of a book or off a piece of paper. And I try to make those trainings uh, interactive and as kind of, uh, you know, informative and fun, for lack of a better word, as I can, you know, and it's soup to nuts from interviewing and hiring right through termination and everything in between. And how can people contact you specifically, Jonathan, if they have questions about the uh, paid family medical leave from Massachusetts or any other employment labor questions? So they can email me at jsegel, J-S-I-G-E-L at myrickoconnell.com, M-I-R-I-C-K-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L.com, or they can call my direct dial, 508 508- Eight six zero one four seven four. And we've been talking about the Massachusetts Paid Family Medical Leave Law with Attorney Jonathan Siegel. He's a partner and chair of Myrick O'Connell's Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group here on On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Jonathan, I just want to thank you one more time. My pleasure, Howard. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks so much. I'm Howard Kaplan. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 